Okay, finally, let's dive into these letters now. We've been through the Gospels. We've got a feel for who Jesus is. Now we're going to start moving toward, we've been through the book of Acts, and we kind of get the feel for how all this started. Some of the early letters that I'm going to read to you now were written while Acts is still unfolding, and we'll see that. So some of these fit right in the Acts story itself. A lot of their books were written after uh, Luke completes his account in the book of Acts, even though he wrote it quite a bit later than some of the books. He, he doesn't take the story beyond Paul getting to Rome, and he kind of leaves the story there, and the rest of it we pick up through tradition and other things. So back to our little storyline here, now going on with how these letters play into it, the dates. Now we're going to look at early, middle, and late letters, and those are just arbitrary. There's a chart I gave you after Acts that kind of listed the best dates for these books, when they think they were written, and who might have written them, and who they were written to. We're not clear about all these things. Believe me, scholars will fight over who is the author of this, and whether it was written to this or that, and we'll talk about some of that going through these books. I don't think that's the big weight of what we need to be aware of as we're reading scripture in our lives and trying to learn what's there. But they do help. I think what does help is to see that there are certain letters that were written early on. Thessalonians, Galatians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Romans. Those are Paul's first letters. And James was probably the very first letter written. So we're going to start with James and we're going to work from him and we're going to work into those letters. Then later we're going to talk about the middle letters, which are in one sense called the prison epistles of Paul's and the book of Hebrews. And then we're going to talk about later letters. And we're going to talk about because they actually, when you look at them that way, even the, the different authorships, there's commonalities in terms of this revelational flow that the church is discovering. And we get to finally then John and, and Revelation, which will end there. We're not going to still have at the end of that, okay, that's the complete picture. Now we have it. We have a lot of things saying, okay, there's lots to think and process and live in. There's lots of things for brothers and sisters to dialogue about. about Man, do you think this is true? Do you think that's true? How is God making himself known? But let's start by just taking then a look at these early letters and who wrote them and what do they mean. And as I said, we'll start with James. James is the first one. I told you Martin Luther didn't like it, threw it out of the canon, basically because of the faith and works passage. But there are other things about it. James uh, seems to be, and, and I'm going to give you on the authorship rather than all the controversy, and you can read those in other places. I'm going to give you the ones that most people think who wrote this. Most of the scholars are kind of agreed here, although it's not absolutely certain. Number of James that are mentioned among the early church. This is likely James, the brother of Jesus his older brother, who was not a follower of Jesus when he was alive, but we know from Acts he becomes a believer later. And he becomes one of the key people in the church at Jerusalem. So this is not James the disciple. This is James the brother of Jesus. And uh, he was martyred in 62 AD by, as the tradition says, being thrown from the temple, the pinnacle of the temple, and then being stoned to death. I mean, the way they killed these guys hanging Peter upside down, throwing somebody from the pinnacle of the temple. I mean, they're mocking the gospel story, aren't they? in the very way they're, they're killing some of these people. It was probably written uh, around 47, 48 AD, very early in the history of the church. It's dealing with some issues that, don't, that, that weren't issues, that, that became issues later on, but not issues yet. Circumcision, for instance, is not me mentioned here. The whole battle between Judaism and Christianity, that's not mentioned here. So he's writing very early, and what his theme is, is the practice of true religion. How that our life of faith really lends itself to a transformed way of living. Now, the way he does that, the way James writes, is very similar. A lot of scholars have compared it to the Sermon on the Mount. He's very direct, and he says some very hard stuff. Take it or leave it. This is the way it is. Pure and undefiled religion is to feed the widows and the orphans in their distress and care for them. I mean, he just, there it is. If you don't do it, then... And he's very cut and dried 
I think James is seeing what many people see, this angst, as people begin to embrace the reality of a loving father. And it's by grace and not works. And there are, there's, it lends itself to two extremes. It leans itself, on the one hand, to this licentiousness of, well, it doesn't matter. Just everything counts. And we'll see that recur in the other epistles as well. That grace just leads to, well, hey, we're all loved and it's unconditionally loved. So it doesn't matter what we do. So eat, drink and be merry and party down because the body doesn't matter. God saves the spirit. And the apostles are continuing to correct that and say, no, that is a misunderstanding. Yes, you are loved. Yes, that love brings you into a relationship with God. But that relationship with God is transformative. And I, I think what they underscore in these things is if you only know love as a principle, it's not transformative. God loves me, loves me no matter what I do. I'm just going to be okay. That's not transformative. Knowing God loves you so that you awaken in Him. You have an ongoing conversation to discover who he is and what he's teaching you and what he wants you to do becomes then part of the journey. And part of that, then what, what, what James wants to say, and maybe over says it. I mean, he really is. It's all great stuff. I love it. But he's talking to believers who are knowing crisis and struggle. So he's talking, he's comforting them and the crisis and the trouble they're in. He's saying a double minded man. Again, there he is again. It's almost a sermon on the mount, cut and dried kind of thing. But underneath what he's saying is great, great truths that when we are double-minded, it's tough to see that we can ask God, that when we're tempted, we don't have to say we're being tempted by God for every good gift and every perfect gift come down from the Father of light. And when we get to the Old Testament, we're going to see that James overturns one of the major conclusions that underline the whole Old Testament, and that is God's responsible for everything. God sends out evil in the Old Testament. God lies. God sends evil spirits. I mean, God's got doing stuff that we get to the New Testament and realize, no, James says God doesn't do that. That was a misunderstanding of who he was. So he wants this practice of real religion, uh, inviting us into uh, an engagement with him that begins to take lives. And this is, again, the church is young. There's no information here about the church as an entity. It's all talking about individuals and how we live together and if someone comes among you. But he's not talking about a meeting, like you're having a Sunday morning meeting somewhere. It's just uh, pockets of relationship. And if you respect the wealthy over the poor, then obviously something's wrong in your heart. And I think James is one of those really wonderful reads in our lives. And there's times when I feel like I need a good James moment. And there's times when I feel like I really need a good Galatians moment. Galatians is kind of the other side of this discussion. James is, how do you think you're going to... You could read James, come out with a bunch of principles about the way you live, and then try and go and live it, and you'll kill yourself. James is counterbalanced by the next book that was written probably in the life of the church. It's Thessalonians and then Galatians. But Galatians is a whole different approach. Yeah, God wants to change you. Yeah, things need to... Yes, this needs to become practical in the way we live. But it's not you changing you. It's you learning to live inside the space of God's grace and his love. And when you live there, you will be transformed. You cannot continue to sin in the arms of mercy. And that gets even more developed over time. This theology of this balance between being loved and being transformed. How do we keep wanting to be transformed? And there's times when I read James and go, wow, I really am kind of outside that circle in some places. Because I pick up stuff in James that challenges me. But then the next thought has to be, if you're going to read this as a story, the next thought has to be, okay, I can't fix this on my own. It may be a mirror. It shows me my hair's not combed well. Okay. Well, now I need to figure out how to fix it. And it's not just as simple as, well, I'm just going to go treat the rich differently. 
or treat the poor differently or I'm going to go, you know, run off to a, do a, an orphan's thing. The passion will last two weeks and then you'll be out of it. And God wants a more substantive, enduring change in our life. But James is one of those mirrors that we get to hold our lives up to. Then we got First and Second Thessalonians, Paul's first books, written to the church at Thessalonica. If you remember the story and the, scripture, the scriptures are in your notes, Paul gets into Thessalonica, but he doesn't get to stay long. Persecution comes quick, comes fast. He has to leave. And so he's writing back to finish up some of the things he didn't get said to them and some of the questions that they were writing him with, particularly about the, the dead in Christ. Because they were expecting... When Jesus talked about some of you will not see death before you see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom, there was an expectation among the early believers that Jesus would come fairly quickly, like within years of His ascension, that this was not going to be... The idea that it would be 2,000 years would have blown their minds away. They just couldn't imagine that. They thought it was fairly quickly, but now Christians were dying. So what do we say about Christians that are dead? And are they going to miss the rapture, the resurrection of the last day? And so Paul writes this chapter to talk about himself a little bit in his ministry. He's trying to encourage them and who they are. But he really gets down to this question of the second coming and what happens at the second coming and what happens to the dead in Christ. And then even more so, this is written, as I said, in the early 50s, 50-51 is what they think. And then the, the second one, six months after that, and he's into the same topic subject again. So the Thessalonians, because Paul didn't have time to answer everything and get into what all they needed to know or wanted to know, He's, he's very short books. They're very quick. They kind of give a, a, a quick perspective on some very specific things they're asking him about. But they really inform us about the second coming, the dead in Christ, the progression of those events as Paul understood them. And we get that understanding in Thessalonians. Galatians, as I said, is the next one written. Galatians is probably the book we most need today. We have become, I think, most of our Western way of thinking about religion is more answered in the book of Galatians than anywhere else. We've become that which has embraced a gospel that is no gospel at all. It's a gospel of human effort and principles and trying to observe principles. And the problem I used to teach that the problem in Galatia was Judaism, that these Judistic advisors had come in and wormed their way back in. But as you read what Galatians is really telling, it's not about Judaism in specific. It's about religion itself, that we get carried away from simply believing what we hear. Galatians 3, 1 to 5, very provocative verses. You foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Before your eyes, Jesus was clearly portrayed as crucified. And how do you, who began by the Spirit, think you're going to perfect yourself through human effort? Very, very challenging. I mean, he's all over these people. Why? He considers that they've moved outside this elliptical playground. They've moved a long way outside. They're not kind of even some in and some out. They're nine, ten years away from Paul actually being there, introducing them to the gospel. He's the one that taught them the cross. He's the one that taught them to live by believing what they hear, to live inside a relationship. And instead, they've changed that to now that people have come in and convinced them, you've got to follow the rules, and here are the rules. And Paul says, chapter 1, you've exchanged the gospel for that which is no gospel at all. And if I or an angel from heaven or if anyone else comes to you and teaches a gospel other than the one I gave you, let him be accursed. I, there's a kind of a little key in there. The gospel at its most primitive is probably its most pure. And the more we seem to play with the gospel as humans and in our institutions, the more we seem to add to the gospel to complicate it. At its most pure was at its most pristine, at its, at its earliest stage. And that it got distorted very quickly. And 
And over 2,000 years of Western history, it seems that that distortion always continues. Almost every denomination you want to mention, whether it's the Lutherans, the Methodists, the you know, Calvary Chapel, Vineyard, some of the contemporary denominations who say they're not denominations, but we all know they are. Um, they all started with people who were kind of feeling hemmed in in the institutions they were part of. And people freely and joyfully began to discover what it was to live loved by God. And then those people started to get together. And people who were living love didn't get along very well together because, you know, then we decided we had to fix that by rules and regulations. So we got a bunch of rules going. And we created the very institutions we came away from. And we, we seem to have that habit of it's just more difficult to teach you how to follow Jesus than it is just to tell you what following Jesus looks like. So I'll give you guidelines instead, instead of letting you live in this reality. And we make that mistake over and over again. And Jesus, in, in, in Galatians, Paul's really writing to people who are lost in their own performance, inviting them back out of it. Galatians 5, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Don't be enslaved again to any yoke of bondage. And he, he has to say, now don't use your freedom as an occasion for the flesh because that's what people were doing. But be, even though people are doing it, notice Paul doesn't take their freedom away from them. It's free. You, yeah, you can use your freedom as an occasion for the flesh. I'm just telling you better off not doing it. Because love, when you really get focused on love and, the, and the, the, the love that comes from an engagement with him and the growing trust in who God is. And he says in Galatians 5, the only thing that counts. Now you think you'd want to draw a line around that or a big circle in your Bible around the only thing that counts. That's pretty provocative. It's not what you do. It's not following the rules. It's not how disciplined you are, how committed you are, how good you are at performing. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. It's growing trust in who God is that manifests itself by loving Him and others around me. And when I love them, Paul says, you keep the whole law, as we said in an earlier session. And so then he can talk about the deeds of the flesh. Here's where you're out of bounds. You live in dissensions, immorality, envy, covetousness, gossip. This is where you're out of bounds. doesn't condemn them. It just says you want to be moving closer into Jesus so that you're not lost in those things. That's outside the circle. And then you want to learn, because inside the circle are these fruits of the Spirit. And then he talks about, the, spirit, uh, then he talks about the, the kind of restoring people who are lost and reaping what we're sowing. And then in the end of Galatians 6, which I think is really key to it all, forbid it that I should boast in anything except the cross of Christ through whom I died to the world and the world died to me. I think Galatians is a book particularly in the day in which we live, in your reading schedule, when you get done with the Gospels and really sort through some of that, I hit Galatians every three or four or five months. I love just reading. That takes a day or two. It's not even a long book. Just read it through and embrace what Galatians says and let it purify that part of our Corinthians. Paul wrote four letters to the Corinthians. The, the two we have are the second and fourth. He refers to others. That's how we know problems among the church at Corinth. So he's writing his first letter again. This is not lofty theology like Paul gets to in Ephesians and Colossians. The Corinthians have written him with very specific questions. They're a very fractured group of people. You can hear that today too. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm a Rob Bell follower. I'm a John MacArthur guy. I'm, you know, we define people's theology by the person that they follow. Corinth was doing exactly the same thing. And so they're divided. And so Paul's writing them to really adjust the way it's a self-based community. Even they can't partake of the table of the Lord without fighting for first place in the line to get the most food over people who don't get any. And there's just, it's, the way they meet is a mass. And their, their, their meetings are just absolutely confusion reigns. So he writes and says, hey, 
Throttle all that back a little bit. Learn to live together in a way that makes sense. And then 2 Corinthians, my favorite. This is, I read 2 Corinthians often just because I love it. The most intimate book that Paul writes. It's all about his motivation for ministry. And there's so much. 2 Corinthians 3 about the new covenant. 2 Corinthians 4 about ministry and eyes that are unveiled and the thorn in the flesh. And 2 Corinthians is just a wonderful unfolding of the depth of Paul's experience and the suffering that he endured. And invites him into that kind of invites us into the kind of freedom that he lives and shares. It ends toward with I'm concerned that you're going to be drawn away from the purity and simplicity of devotion to Christ. And that is always the danger. That's what, Paul was a Pharisee before he was a disciple. He gets that. Second Corinthians continues that he's not writing to a specific problem, though they're still fighting over this guy where there was immorality present and they had to discipline this guy, so they're bringing him out of it. Um, and he wants to be restored now. They, they kind of put him outside the group, and now they've kept him outside the group after he's repented. So that part of it writing is to invite him back in. It's the most personal, the most autobiographical. And then Romans, I just want to make sure this was the last one because I'm getting time cues. Romans, the most theological book Paul writes. Paul writes this letter before he goes to Rome, probably on his way back to Jerusalem with the offering that we know toward the end of Acts, he's taking back to Jerusalem. He's going from there as a prisoner to Rome, but he wants to write the Romans. He's desired to come to them because Paul's desire was to get past Rome. Paul wanted to get on to Spain. And tradition says he actually did, though scripture doesn't say he did. Tradition has it that he got to Rome and from Rome went on to Spain to help establish some things there. He's going to Rome and to meet with a group of believers that he did not found. And this is the only book he writes to a group of people. He was not part of their founding. He was not part of their coming to Christ and beginning the exploration of the journey. What we get in Romans is Paul's most theological work. He defines for them, I believe, in Romans, the teaching of the cross that he taught at Ephesus. Taught, Colossae he didn't found either. As a matter of fact, I'll get to that later. That's the only other one he doesn't. Um, but it's near some of the churches that he founded. He's, when he's been in those places, he's taught what really happened on the cross. He's taught 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and Romans chapter 5 through 8. So Romans is Paul's most theological work. He's not engaging people personally because he doesn't know them personally. So he's writing this treatise and he's anticipating as he's doing it all the questions people would ask. As he's talking about grace, he's anticipating people saying, oh, so if grace is greater than the law and now grace where sin increases uh, or the law increases, sin increases all the more. But then so does grace increase. Then I guess we should just keep sinning so that grace gets better. And Paul says, no, 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 no. He's adjusting this theology. At the same time, he's giving us the best demonstration of the righteousness that trust produces. We're going to visit this again in Philippians. The righteousness that trust produces is core to Paul's theology. It's what's growing in this revelational experience for him. From the beginning, it's grace, all grace. And then he talks about how grace leads to trust and how trust transforms. The righteousness that comes by faith is not me believing for righteousness. is our distorted view of faith. If we took faith as trust, what he's saying is the more you trust the Father the freer you live to live the way He wants you to live in the world. And the reason we don't live the way He wants us to live in the world is because we ultimately don't trust Him and therefore feel like we have to do it on ourselves or we have to do things to earn His grace or earn His love. So we get that confused. And so Paul is really laying out here, when you learn to live in the work that Jesus accomplished, we see here what also begins in Paul. Romans is kind of the first place where he does this new way of writing that follows through in his other letters. He writes... In, in Romans, it's 10 chapters of indicatives. This is what's true about God and what he's done for you. This is what's true. And then Romans 12 and on is, so therefore, 
as living sacrifices. Now he gives the, how shall we live? He does that with in uh, Ephesians as well and Colossians. There's all these imperatives. This is what you need to know about God and his love for you. Thou, as God's children, holy and dearly loved, put off the old man. And then he brings down to the imperatives, the way we're to live. Most people skip the indicatives and they just skip to the rules, putting off the old. We're not supposed to be angry. We're supposed to forgive. We're supposed to, we're supposed to. And people can't figure out how to live it. And they're frustrated. Why? Because you don't live that in your own strength. Until you get the truth of what, who God is and what he's done in you, you can't lay down your life as a living sacrifice. You can't put off the old man and put on the new. It's not yours to do. It's God's to do as he invites us in. Romans is one of those books you want to pass by at least once a year and spend some time. Don't do a chapter a day in Romans. Do 10, 12 verses a day where you can just let them season in your heart. Understand what did Christ accomplish as the federal man? He replaced what Adam did and brought sin to all of us. Christ did and established righteousness for all who believe. And in that, at the end of the argument, the end of Romans 8, now we know nothing can separate us from the love of God. It's the pinnacle of that. So these early letters are, are growing people into, okay, here's what the practical living begins to look like. Here's what some of the concerns are. And now more of a developing theology about the righteousness that trust produces. And we're going to see that more in the, in the, in the letters ahead.